Liberty Solutions here. We are a no whining allowed show on what the people can actually do about today's problems. Who decides, you or a DC career politician surrounded by marble and money? We like facts, so caution out to prisoners of their own drama. There's logic here. As Mark Twain said, politicians and diapers need to be changed often and for the same reason. Hey everybody, Keith here. This is going to be an alternate format show. It's going to be a ramble. I spent a week taking a vacation, drove down to Key West from South Florida where I live. And uh, coming back up, I went through the Everglades and central farming areas and uh, stopped by and saw Lake Okeechobee. I wanted to find out what all the fuss is about. Key West is a pretty interesting place. It's definitely a high liberty city. No question they have a live and let live attitude there. You see late night music venues open all week. People walking around all hours of the day and night. They don't enforce the open container law. The only other place I've ever been like that is New Orleans. No problem. There's bars selling drinks. You can get a beer, put it in a cup, and walk down the sidewalk. One time I was sitting at a bar and wanted to go see the nightly vigil at the waterfront for the sunset and started walking over and realized uh, half the people going had a drink with them. So I went back, got another rum and orange juice and said I wanted to go watch the sunset and the bartender says have a great time sir. Pretty cool. Nobody cares about same-sex couples holding hands. See a few drag queens around. Went in a uh, pipe and bong store there's a bunch of them competing. Competing. Haven't seen that for a while. They do have a sign, tobacco only, but you look around at about uh, several hundred bongs and think, I don't think people are smoking tobacco with this stuff, these water pipes. The guy running it said, well, they're for tobacco only, but what you do with it after you buy it is your business. I was amused. And anyway, rec- recreational cannabis will be legal soon enough, so people just need to be patient. It kind of reminds me of New Orleans without the river dike. You know, it's it's a uh, it's a kinder, gentler version of New Orleans with a with a nautical theme. I like it. A lot of what I like about New Orleans is Key West has, and it's nicer. One of the fun things about it is the it's called the Conch Republic. They seceded from the U.S. in 1982 with uh, Key West as the capital. April 23rd is Independence Day. Their currency is called the sand dollar, which is de facto tied to the U.S. dollar. According to Wikipedia, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but they actually had some uh, real concerns when they did it. The name now is refused, used to refer to all the Florida Keys, and uh, Key West is the capital. Their motto is, we seceded where others failed. Pretty good line. Their concerns were, in uh, 1982, the U.S. Border Patrol had put up a roadblock and a checkpoint. There's only two roads to get onto the Keys from the mainland. Right in front of the Last Chance Saloon, south of Homestead, south of Miami, they were searching everybody for drugs and illegal aliens. was hurting tourism and frustrated the local residents. They complained for a while. Uh, They even went to court, tried to get an injunction. That failed. 
So finally they seceded from the U.S. and uh, elected a prime minister and he declared war on the U.S. And then one minute later he surrendered surrendered and requested foreign aid. Uh, it's kind of amusing, but actually it caused a lot of publicity and ended up getting the roadblock removed. The Border Patrol does this often. There's a law that allows them to check for illegal aliens within 100 miles of the border in any vehicle. And they can observe what's visible by plain sight. But motorists can decline. They can refuse to submit to a search. And the agents are required to develop probable cause. Tourism industry was affected. One of the uh, big effects was the Dry Tortugas. It's 70 miles west. It's the last key in the Keys, Florida Keys chain. There's a lot of boats and seaplanes go out there and bring tourists. And there's a fort out there. So the the Conk Republic Navy went out to the Dry Tortugas and they retook Fort Jefferson. What they wanted to do was keep the fort open for the tourists. So they got a bunch of private money together and they went to the park and reopened it, even though the federal government was shut down. When the U.S. officials eventually showed up, the uh, Conk Republic officials cited them. So it got taken to court, ended up being a federal court case, U.S. versus Paul Anderson. And they contested the citation, but the court dropped it. Anyway, the whole thing's pretty amusing, but there's some uh, there's some real-life secession to it. Um, they do have passports available for tourists. They have a flag, the Conk Republic flag. They maintain an army, a navy, and an air force. And uh, they have a Facebook page I signed up for. It, it has 40,000 members. I thought it was pretty good. At least uh, in 1982, the, we didn't have Lincoln as a president, so he didn't... The president didn't send bombers out to Key West to re-pull them back into the Union, to maintain the Union. One of the interesting things I went to was the Mel Fisher Museum. It's a, in Key West. It's an educational place, and it's a collection of treasures from a Spanish galleon that was sunk in the 1600s. 1622, a 28-ship fleet left Havana for Spain. They had 40 tons of silver, gold, emerald, and pearls. They ran into a hurricane the next day, and most of the ships sunk, hit reefs, or broke apart. The biggest one is the Atasha. It's a 550-ton, 112-foot ship, 14-foot draft. It was carrying 40 tons. had 24 tons of silver ingots, 80,000 silver coins, pieces of eight. 125 gold bars, 1,200 pounds of silverware, 300 chests filled with indigo. It sank with 265 people aboard and five survivors clung to the mast were rescued. Uh, the rescuers found them and they marked the spot, but they tried to get down to it. It's 55 feet down, um, pretty tough in the 1600s. Uh, they weren't able to get any of the treasures out. And then another hurricane came along and destroyed the wreck a little further, and they lost the mark. And the Spanish searched for 60 years without finding it before finally gave up. So anyway, this guy Mel Fisher, uh, back in the late 40s, he, or early 50s, he started the first scuba shop in California. They had to make wetsuits at the time. There was nothing commercially available. 
his wife was one of the first women to learn to scuba drive. Anyway, later in the 50s, he started getting into treasure hunting, went for a honeymoon in the Keys and did some wreck diving and thought it was pretty cool. So he moved his family from California to the Keys, did a few uh, treasure hunts, found found a little bit, and then uh, he decided to go after the Atasha. He was doing some dive instruction and that thing, but they dropped the whole idea. They got some investors, they got a bunch of people to volunteer for a year, and they started searching for the Atacha. In uh, 1969, they started. In 75, they found a few silver bars uh, and some some coins and kind of encouraged them. And uh, eventually, in 1985, after 16 years, they found the ship. They got a team together of archaeologists and conservators to ensure nothing was lost and started bringing up the treasure. And then what happened is Florida found out they were doing this. And Florida says, hey, that's our stuff. State figured it was all their property. They resisted, of course, and went back and forth and argued. And eventually they agreed to give 25% of the value to um, Florida. And they would keep 75% in exchange for bringing it all up, which is quite a bit of work. They had to find it all. It was spread out over miles. So the Florida Division of Archives, they claim they owned it. A little bit later, there was a court case, was unrelated to this, but it was a Supreme Court case called U.S. versus Florida, where Florida and U.S. were fighting over who owned the natural resources of property located within what Florida thought was their, their sea territory. Um, which included where the Atasha was, they found against Florida. They said that's a federal property. I don't know uh, what that's based on, but that's what they said. So when this happened, Fisher filed an admiralty law claim against Florida, saying that Florida had no right to the title of any of the property. Um, And the federal court agreed. They ordered the U.S. Marshal to take all the treasure that was held by the state of Florida and return it to Fisher. This ended up uh, in the Supreme Court in 1982 called Florida versus Treasure Salvers. The majority opinion used the 11th Amendment, which I don't get, but they said that Florida waived the 11th Amendment as a claim to the property, and the 11th Amendment does not bar the U.S. Marshals from seizing the treasure from Florida. They said Florida has no claim to the property. One of the judges, I I read some of the case, Brennan, he agreed that Florida has no claim, but he also said 11th Amendment does not apply because both parties in Florida. I agree. I never uh, saw the 11th Amendment used before, but what it says is, the judicial power of the United States shall not be construed to extend to any suit in law or equity commenced or prosecuted against one of the United States by citizens of another state or by citizens or subject of any foreign state. So I agree with Brennan. I don't agree with the majority opinion here. Uh, It's pretty clear for two corporations or two entities within Florida, the 11th Amendment does not apply. Um, So it seems like the Supreme Court made the right decision for the wrong reason. 
But anyway, what they ended up saying is uh, finders keepers. Fisher and his investors and his crew found the treasure. So it was theirs. Florida has no jurisdiction to take it. He eventually pulled up half a billion dollars worth of treasure. Pretty amazing for one guy and his family and friends to find. Another thing I did interesting in Key West is there's a Coast Guard Cutter Museum. It's a privately owned and funded historical site that has a a 327-foot Coast Guard Cutter built in 1936, docked right at the waterfront, and you can go on tours for 10 bucks. It was the best 10 bucks I spent in Key West. It was really interesting. I spent a couple hours there looking at the ship and talking to talking to the people working there, a bunch of volunteers. Uh, they do it for educational reasons and for um, teaching people about you know, what happened in the wars. So this particular Coast Guard ship was always essentially a military vessel. Uh, it was built as a military vessel. It fought in World War II, was a convoy escort and an anti-submarine hunter in the Atlantic. Later it was in the Philippines battles, went to Guam, was in Vietnam War, was blocking arms shipments to the communists in South Vietnam. And then it was used for law enforcement and fishery patrol out of Norfolk. Uh, they got uh, into the drug war when that got big, when uh, the Reagans got in power and they started really escalating the drug war. Um, they also used it for some search and rescue, but it's mostly a warship. In 1988, it was decommissioned, too expensive to maintain. At the time, it was the oldest cutter in commission was donated to a museum in Charleston, and then after a bit was transferred to Key West. I met the, the guy that owns it. He said he bought it. At the time it was decommissioned and retired, it was the most decorated Coast Guard vessel in history. They had to tow it to Key West because they couldn't get bunker fuel. The engines won't run on diesel. They ran on raw oil, as uh, was standard in the 30s when it was built. Really fascinating ship to go through and see what the people lived like in World War II trying to trying to fight, you know. It's a 20-knot ship. It has a provision on the back deck to hold an aircraft. They had a, a crane and they launched a Grumman seaplane in and out of the water. It has two boilers and two Westinghouse steam turbine engines. 6,000 horsepower total. Uh, you can see the whole engine room, the boiler room and the engine room. Very interesting. Had a 8,000 mile range. They said it would cost about 20k to get the engines running again, but the problem is you can't buy bunker fuel. The uh, one of the interesting things about it is when they donated it to the original museum, everything is left exactly as it was when the last crew left the ship when the uh, last mission left in. So. In the laundry room, there's laundry hanging. The cruise info is in the library. There's all the binders for information on the equipment. Uh, there's dishes and pots in the galley and and uh, clothes around and, and a lot of equipment, tools. Uh, it's a fascinating trip. But the, the cool thing I liked about it is it wasn't a government museum. It's a private museum run by volunteers. And uh, they're all veterans, and they know a lot about the ship. I did a lot of work in Navy communications electronics, so it was very interesting to me to see the, the radio room and the, the combat center where they had all the radios and the crypto gear. And Another interesting thing in 
Key West is the Dry Tortugas Trips. It's a national park about 70 miles west of Key West. It's the furthest western of the Florida Keys. Uh, it's still in Florida, still part of Monroe County, which is what all the Keys are in. Um, it's 40 miles west of the Marquesas Keys, which are about halfway there. So the Dry Tortugas, uh, it's called dry because there is no fresh water. Um, and Tortuga just means turtle in Spanish. So the uh, Ponce de Leon is the guy who first discovered them. And they were looking for food, and they got hundreds of turtles uh, captured from the Dry Tortugas. And he's the one who gave it the name. Um, in the uh, they started building Fort Jefferson when uh, when Florida was purchased from Spain in uh, 1800s um, before the Civil War. Uh, 1822, I looked it up. Um, they got the Dry Tortugas and all the Keys along with the mainland Florida, and they started building a fort immediately after that. It's called Fort Jefferson. They never finished it. Worked on it for 30 years has 16 million bricks what's there. It's the largest brick structure in the Western Hemisphere. Interesting spot to put one of the biggest forts in the country. It was named a national monument in 1935. Oh, back before that, some interesting I was reading about. Uh, they made it a prison during the Civil War. It remained in Union hands. It never was in Southern hands. And one of the people held there was Dr. Mudd. He's the guy that treated Lincoln's assassin, John Wilkes Booth. Uh, he's he's the one where the expression, your name is mud, comes from. Anyway, it was named a national monument uh, in 1935 and then expanded to a national park in 1992 by an act of Congress. The point was to preserve the Keys and the marine ecosystem and also take ownership and preserve the shipwrecks. And they wanted to, quote-unquote, regulate public access. Now, I was kind of interested in this. Like, why does the federal government own and control this land within Florida? And why did they decide in 1992 to take it over? Uh, there was a lot of people fishing there, and tourists went out and did hikes and camped, and uh, private vessels went out and did fishing and scuba diving and treasure hunting. And the federal government, basically, they came in and said, nope, this is ours now. Uh, Florida, you have no jurisdiction, and we're going to use it for whatever we want. What they said is that they were going to regulate all access by the public. I, I don't get that. I was wondering where in the Constitution they're allowed to do this. So I looked this up. Article 1, Section 8 defines what land the federal government is allowed to, to own what they're authorized. First thing is the seat of government, which is less than 10 square miles. Uh, that's where Washington, D.C. comes from. Other than that, all places have to be purchased with the consent of the legislature of each state that has authority over the area where they purchase it. And the only thing they're authorized to, to buy land for is forts, arsenals, and dockyards. So, in my opinion, all national parks are unconstitutional. So, I, I don't get it. Florida seems like they could tell the government to get lost. Florida should run the dry tortugas, not the federal government. It's true of all national parks, all national forests. could solve a lot of problems by letting the state and the local people run those areas. Throw the Bureau of Land Management out of the West. Anyway, I digress. 
So I took a drive back up through the uh, central part of Florida because the drive from where I live a couple hours down below Miami is pretty, it's a lousy drive, Turnpike or 95. used to live in New Jersey. I've spent lots of time on that kind of a road and don't need any more of it. So on the way back up, as soon as I got to where uh, the houses start in mainland, I went west through the Everglades to about three-quarters of the way west through Florida, then up north through the Everglades and into the farming areas south of Lake Okeechobee. And I want to do this because there's a lot of fuss about Lake Okeechobee, and uh, I'm new to Florida, so I decided to check it out. So the Everglades were pretty cool to see. That looked like kind of what I expected. Um, but that's only a, a much smaller area in the very southern central part of Florida compared to what it used to be before they started uh, damming and controlling all the water coming out of Lake Okeechobee. So once you get up above the Everglades area, what used to be part of the Everglades and now is all farms. There's cattle and oranges and sugar, lots and lots of sugar. This is where the uh, quote-unquote big sugar people are. So I went up, uh, went out 41 and then up 29, and then I followed back roads to Cluiston, uh, which is called the sweetest city in the U.S. I figured that's a good place to learn about big sugar and learn about the lake. The town or the city is right up against the the dike around the lake. Um, there's a 40-foot dike right at the right at the edge of suburban Cluiston. Stayed at a historic inn. It's about 75 years old. Really cool place for 70 bucks. The area, I had dinner at a bar there, a marina bar. There's a, a lock that lets a canal, one of the canals that feeds water to all the sugar and cattle and orange farms south of there. Um, also, they use the water for the municipal water and for um, industry. Anyway, everything's behind a lock. So there's a marina, but to get to the lake, you got to go through a lock. You can get up on top of the dike there and see the uh, channel that runs along the edge of the lake where they got all the dirt to build the, the dike from. Um, but it reminds me of New Orleans. First time I went there, I stayed at a place right against the dike in New Orleans, which is about the same height, two stories or so tall, staying in a friend's dorm, two stories two-story high dorm room and you get up on top of the dike and you're looking at the roof of the two-story buildings and think who the hell decided to put a city here a crazy idea anyway i saw the same thing thought the same thing about cluiston just does not seem like a good idea to have a house that's right behind this 40-foot wall with a lake on the other side bad plan uh during hurricane irma i, I talked to some residents there um it was a mandatory evacuation area. They were worried the dike would overflow. Storm runoff or from uh, storm surge. Uh, Lake Okeechobee's plenty big enough that they get wind-induced storm surge. And what happened is because there was a mandatory evacuation, then FEMA said they'll fix up all the houses. So FEMA's paying for house repairs for, for uh, Hurricane Irma damage in Clewiston. I don't get that. I won't go off on FEMA, but I could. So anyway, I wanted to see what the fuss is. I looked up Lake Okeechobee and the, the Everglades and the farms. The lake is 730 square miles. Its its widest point is 36 miles and 29 miles in the other direction. It's half the size of Rhode Island, but it's only 9 feet deep. It's got about a cubic mile of water. 
or uh, one trillion gallons at maximum capacity. Uh, the maximum depth in the lake, anywhere in the lake, is 12 feet. It's kind of amazing for something 36 miles long. Okeechobee means big water in, uh, in an old Indian language. In 1928, a hurricane killed about 2,500 people from storm surge. Um, they had a six-foot mud dike at the pro- at the time around it, and uh, it it went way over that. So Herbert Hoover visited, and Florida started a program, and they got the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers involved, and they decided to build a bigger dike. They ended up building a what eventually became a 40-foot dike all the way around. It's it's like 150 miles long. It's a crazy thing. Um, they built channels and gates and levees. So there's gates all over the place to let the water into canals. And then the area south of that is just this huge network of canals running everywhere. They got all the dirt for the wall out of the out of the uh, lake rim, and they call it the rim canal. So there's a deep water navigable waterway all the way around the perimeter from where they got the dirt for the dike out. But it does still surge. Uh, recently, uh, Hurricane Fay, or Tropical Storm Fay, caused a four-foot increase in the level. The problem with Okeechobee is the heavy rain releases polluted water into the... Um, they have to let the water out, and they dump it into the St. Lucie Canal, ends up in the river, and then the Indian River Lagoon, and also into the Colossahatchee River. Colusahatchee River. Sorry, Florida people. The Army Corps of Engineers keeps it between 12 and 15 feet above sea level. Talk about it all the time because the problem is that there's algae blooms in the lake, and when they dump the water, the algae ends up in Stewart and ends up in the Indian River Lagoon. It's a big recreational area, fishing and and, uh, water skiing and sailing. and They lose millions of dollars from, from these algae blooms caused by the Army Corps of Engineers dumping the water. So the whole deal, when they put this big wall around it, causes all sorts of problems. It causes everybody to, to argue. What what happens is farms to the north of it, um, they their fertilizer runs into the river that feeds into it. There's several rivers, uh, the Kissimmee and the Fish Eating Creek and several others. Um, with the Kissimmee being the main, that's half the water going into Lake Okeechobee. Um, the fertilizer gets in the lake, it causes an algae bloom, and one of the algae products is microcysteine. It's a toxin produced by bacteria in fresh water. causes serious liver damage. There's signs that I saw when I was looking at one of the locks. You know, there's a bunch of green, you know, fluorescent green crap in the water. It smells like crap too, but it's bright green. There's a big sign that says, you know, do not touch it. They, they avoid skin contact with that stuff. Anyway, FEMA's gets involved, but FEMA said it's a state issue. Governor Scott tried to get federal disaster relief. They always want money from the federal government. But FEMA said no, so I'm glad FEMA stood up on that. The water used to go out by what they call sheet flow over the Everglades, just many, many miles wide, thin water. It got filtered by the Everglades. It kept everything in the Everglades alive. Uh, now it goes to canals, the St. Lucie Canal, the West Palm Beach Canal, the New River Canal, the Miami Canal, and there's all these networks off that for irrigation and industry. 
when I was reading up about it, I read about the congressionally authorized uses of Lake Okeechobee. I mean, what the? Why, why does Congress define the proper uses of a lake in Florida? But they do. So the authorized uses are floodwater management, navigation, water supply for irrigation, industry, and municipalities, fish and wildlife. I thought that was interesting. So Congress authorized fish and wildlife to use a 40-mile-wide lake. I guess the fish have to read the rules. Uh, and also recreation is legal. Florida apparently does not have a say in what the lake can be used for. Anyway, I want to talk a little bit about the Convention of States project. When I see stuff like this, like this whole trip, I'm just surrounded by stuff. I look like there's a lot of things that need to be changed, and, and this is a way to change it. I'm glad the Conk Republic wasn't bombed for seceding from the U.S., so happily, Lincoln was not president then. I talked to a number of people about Convention of States, you know, and, and every single person I talked to there said they got it immediately, said, uh, yeah, I'm going to check this out. Uh, and a big question, like, why does the federal government own the Dry Tortugas? And, and why did they claim to own the shipwrecks that are in Florida? It's unconstitutional. Uh, there's there's nothing in Article One list of federally authorized lands that allows them to own some keys in Florida and the shipwrecks that happen to be there. And think about the the Bureau of Land Management and the National Parks and the National Forest. The federal government owns 28 percent of the land in the U.S. It's 635 million acres of the two and a quarter billion. In the western states, it's half of all the land overall. Um, they don't own much in the east because uh, I think they didn't start getting into this until later. So the states in the east don't have the same problem as the ones in the west. The I looked up some states. The lowest one is Connecticut, 0.3%, two national parks. One of the interesting things they have here is that because the states are losing tax revenue from property taxes, the federal government provides them funding in lieu of taxes. So Connecticut gets 30k a year. Uh, the highest state is Nevada. It's 81%. Federal government owns 81% of Nevada. Uh, there's three national parks. I assume, I didn't find out, but I assume a lot of it is Bureau of Land Management. Uh, it's probably ranches and, and, and nothing. And they, uh, they provide Nevada with $24 million in lieu of taxes per year. Uh, doesn't sound very much for 80% of Nevada. Uh, next is Utah with 67%. Uh, California is 48%. So California wants to secede. That'll be interesting. What do they do with half of the land in California is not owned by California? I don't know what happens with that. Their money in lieu of taxes is $40 million a year. So I find it interesting that the federal government thinks that 48% of California is worth $40 million a year in property taxes. Probably go to Hollywood and, and take a couple of blocks and get $40 million in property taxes. Uh, New Jersey's 4%. I looked that one up. Florida's 13%. They get $5 million a year. New Jersey gets $100K a year in property tax. Uh, I lived in New Jersey. $100K isn't very much worth a property tax. That probably comes off of my neighborhood. Um, so I don't know how the federal government figures 4% of New Jersey is only worth 100 k 
And Lake Okeechobee is the biggest example. That should be run by Florida. The Army Corps of Engineers has no business being involved in that. Uh, it's not very deep, so it barely can count as navigable waterway. So I don't get it. That should be paid for, and it should be run by, by Florida. So I think of two amendments here. Solve this problem that Convention of States should do. First one is limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government. And great example is is the dry tortugas. Like, why do they have any involvement there? That should be run by Florida. Solve a lot of problems if the federal government wasn't involved. Let Florida take care of Florida. And same with Lake Okeechobee. Uh, second one that would help this is is the Convention of States Project Fiscal Responsibility Amendment. So basically limit the fiscal extravagances of the federal government. Um, why are they paying to fix houses in Clewiston from Hurricane Irma? I don't get that at all. So I, I think the people in Clewiston should pay to fix their roof if it was damaged in the hurricane. I shouldn't be paying for that, let alone somebody who doesn't live in Florida. If you're not happy with D.C. politicians and bureaucrats taking your money and trying to run your life, wondering what can you do, the Convention of States Action is working to get two-thirds of the states to propose a meeting, a Convention of States meeting, to draft and propose amendments to the Constitution for three topics. Restrict power and jurisdiction of the federal government, impose term limits, and impose fiscal responsibility on the federal government. The meeting would be limited to proposing amendments for these three topics. Three-quarters of states still have to ratify. You can visit conventionofstates.com. It shows why, what, and who the grassroots organization is. There's support statements from national figures. At the bottom, hit the plus. There's an info tab with a lot of uh, about information on the project. If you agree, then hit the plus symbol for take action. There's a petition you can sign that sends your name to your state legislator saying that you support the Convention of States project. You can join a volunteer team. There's lots of roles where you can help. It's also a citizen's guide, citizen's pocket guide you can download. It's a short read, explains the Convention of States. So please see conventionofstates.com. Thanks for listening to Liberty Solutions this week. Please like us, follow us, and subscribe on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and iTunes. The question facing us and facing our fellow countrymen is a two-word question. Very simply, who decides? The American founders had a simple answer. We, the people, decide.